Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Boy, it's great to see you this morning. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of John, chapter 4. We continue in our series for a few moments together as we're teaching through the gospel of John. And so today we're going to talk about something that is highly unpopular and extremely uncomfortable. You say, Mark, that is wonderful. Isn't that a great way to start out? You know, it kind of puts you on defense, doesn't it, right? Like, I'm not sure I want to hear this, so what are you going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about the word obedience this morning, yes. And it is truly highly unpopular and makes us uncomfortable because we struggle with this area of biblical obedience within our lives, as, as everyone does. I just heard a woo out there, yes, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even some of you getting up this morning, it was a struggle for you because you feel like, oh, well, I have to be obedient because I, I, I feel like I, need, I have to go to church. Not I need to go to church, but I have to go to church. So that was, you know, it kind of started out as that. And I think it's something that oh, we all struggle with in this area of, of biblical obedience. Yes. And it comes in so many forms. It comes in absolutely so many forms. You always seem to have someone telling you what to do, don't you? That's, that's kind of life. Like this morning, we told you when to stand. We commanded you when to stand, and we commanded you when to sit. You say, Mark, command is a strong word. Well, we suggested to you, right, that you stand, that you sit, that you even give. We made that suggestion to you, absolutely, that on your way to church, you were commanded or told how fast you were to drive getting here. That's right. You were. It's called the what? The speed limit. Some of you were disobedient already in that area. Isn't that right? So let's just kind of level the ground for a moment and, and it just kind of makes us all feel better. So how many of you in driving to church this morning that you know that you absolutely, you broke the speed limit at some point? Raise your hand. Oh, see that? Look at, look around this. We are in a room full of criminals. We are. Yes. Absolutely. Put your hand down. All right. Good deal. How many of you on your way to your normal route to come here, you even have no idea what the speed limits are? Raise your hand if you're here. Okay. That's, you're even a more dangerous crowd. Okay. Put your hand down. That's, that's good. So it is, it is very level ground in here this morning. You know, I, I'm told what to do by, by people and things and circumstances in life and, and whether I obey or not is, is sometimes absolutely my decision. Somebody told me this this week not to worry, to stop worrying. That was the command. And so I begin to worry why they tell me not to worry. You know, that begins to worry. Like, well, what are you not telling me that's going on? And they say, well, be happy. Well, how can I be happy when you've told me not to worry about the thing that I was worrying about in life? So I, I, I don't know. I'm always being told simply what to do. I am. A few weeks ago, we were in Charleston for Parents' Day at, at, with Grace and our, our middle son, who's in college there. And so we parked in this area, and, and it's a grassy area, but I didn't see signs that said no parking. I didn't see that, you know? So I figure I'm safe. Why? Because everybody else was doing it. So I parked there. And so we come back out after the festivities on campus, and I get in, we drive off, and I notice that there is a piece of paper under my windshield wiper flapping in the wind. And I thought, somebody left me a thank you note is what it is, right? Yes, it was a thank you note from the city of Charleston, a parking ticket for $45, you know? That's expensive. That really is. 45 bucks. So what do I do? Oh, I, I, you know, you're not going to tell me where to park. Is it, is I, so I drive to the police station is where I drive to, right, on campus. I go in, open the door, and there in the lobby before I can hardly even get in the door are five very large police officers. And they're all looking at me, four from the, the Citadel and one from the city of Charleston. They're looking at me. I'm holding this in my hand, and they start laughing at me, you know? They do, and they're kind of surrounding me. They start laughing at me. 
and, and I begin to explain myself, and I give the worst excuse I could ever find in my entire vocabulary to say, and my excuse was, well, everybody else was doing it. That was my excuse, right? And it's the thing that you say your kids, tell your kids to never do. Never say that. Never go do something that is absolutely wrong and then say, well, I did it because everybody else is doing it. Well, your pastor did the same thing. Yes. And so, Mark, what did you do? Did you get out of the ticket? No, I just paid it. I, I paid it, actually. It's what I did. Yes. So obedience is part of our lives. It's part of everything that we do during our days. So here's the point. There are four very, I think, what I call big ideas in our discussion this morning. The first is this, that gospel conversations must always include come and see. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. That never assume that people understand who Jesus is and what he does, even if they're disciples. Don't make that assumption. Yeah, obedience is food for the soul and the spirit as food is to the human body. So how's your diet? That is a personal question. And the fourth one being that biblical obedience is not about earning something from God because he has already given everything. Now, last week we had this narrative. We continue in the chapter in chapter four of the book of John. But last year we or last week we went into this narrative that of the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, maybe you weren't here, or maybe you have never heard this narrative before. Because I know we have a very mixed crowd, and and that is wonderful, and we're glad you're here wherever you are on your journey with Christ. So, can I give you kind of a, a recap of what we talked about last week? You see, what Jesus does is he finds himself at the well of Jacob in the country of Samaria. And you have to understand, because you have to paint this story with this brush of that of the racial and that of the religious tension between the Jews and the the Samaritans. In fact, the scripture we read last week said that Jews have absolutely nothing to do with Samaritans. They would not shake their hand. They they refuse to touch places that Samaritan touches. They would touch. Why? Because they view Samaritans, one, as their ethnicity, as not being pure Jews, and secondly, as their religion, because they refused to come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. In fact, some Samaritans in the past had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, so there's this huge rift between them, so they have nothing to do with one another. And then we find that the scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So what happens is this, that it is the Father's will for him to go there that day. So he goes where no other Jew would ever go. And there he meets a woman at the well of Jacob in the noon time at the hottest part of the day. And she goes there because of her lifestyle that she avoids her community. In fact, she tries to live as an invisible life as she can because of the guilt that, and shame that is in her life. So here's the story that Jesus takes this risk culturally and religiously to reach her heart. He asked her for a drink from the well when they meet together that day at noon, the hottest part of the day. But yet he has no bucket and he has no cup to simply drink from the well. She questioned him about that because his intention is always to cross all boundaries in our life to reach our heart. So he is even willing to drink from that of a vessel that a Samaritan had drank from. And he's crossing all kinds of cultures to reach her heart with a message of living water. So they have this discussion about living water. That day. And then after this discussion about you drink from this well and you're going to thirst, but if you drink from the water that I bring to you, Jesus says to her that you'll never thirst again. And this intrigues her greatly in this conversation. And after that conversation, he has a request, maybe a command. Yes, an opportunity for obedience in her life. And he says to her, Go get your husband. 
And then all of a sudden, without any hesitation, she's transparent with him. And she says, listen, I don't have a husband. And he says, you have said the right thing. You're absolutely true. And then Jesus says to her, without her ever saying anything about her life, he says, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're now living with is not your husband at all. Yes. So what does she do? She does what we do. Yes, with God. That she wants to have some shop talk with him. She wants to have some church talk with him. So she plays the religious card with Jesus. And she begins to try to try to turn the conversation. So she has this talk with him about where you should worship. Do you worship in the mountain or do you worship at Jerusalem? And she has this. Con- and then at the middle of the at the end of the conversation, what Jesus does, he reveals himself to her as the Messiah. It's a powerful, powerful narrative that all of us can connect to. Yes. And so. The disciples are not there. They've gone to buy food so to bring back to Jesus. So verse 27 is where we take on our text this morning. Verse 27, chapter 4. And here's what happens. The disciples are returning from buying food for Jesus. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Hey, they know Jesus enough to know that they should keep their mouth closed here. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out, and, and they went out of the town, the people, the townspeople, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Such a powerful response to what Jesus has asked her to do. She's not totally convinced. You know, when a lot of theologians debate this fact of that statement, can this be the Christ, as maybe she wasn't convinced, or this is some kind of rhetorical statement or question that she makes to those in town. However, they respond. So here's the first of our talking points this morning, two of them. The first is this hour, and I put inconsistent in brackets this morning. I put that because there is the real of our lives and there's the ideal of our lives. And listen, most of you broke the law this morning already, right? Yes? So obedience is inconsistent within our lives. We're just going to call it what it is, all right? We're not going to pretend that we have this obedience thing down, but we're going to call it what it is. So our inconsistent obedience is a response to an understanding of Christ consistent grace within our lives. Listen, Christian obedience is more than a a response to a command. It's more than a response to a command. It's a result of a loving relationship. In this narrative that we just went through together, recapping it together, this woman at the well, the command to her that day is, hey, go back to town and you get your husband and bring him here. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, I know you've had five of them and the one you're living with is not your husband. There's a command, yes. And you say, Mark, I would rather you use the term request, okay? Well, whatever you want to call it, okay, whatever, however it makes you feel good, there's this command, but her response far exceeds what Jesus asked her to do. Because, no, she doesn't just bring her husband, but she brings the town with her. Those that have treated her with disdain, those that have been judgmental in her, causing her to come to the well at the hottest part of the day, yeah, those are the ones that she brings with her. There's something else taking place. That's why I could not move past chapter 4 without us in depth looking at this with some depth this morning. 
Because Jesus just told her, bring her husband, but her response is far beyond that. What, what is this about? What does this mean? Because Jesus is not looking from you and I some begrudging submission. That's not what obedience in life is about. That's not what biblical obedience in life is, is about. It's not just, well, Jesus asked this, so I guess I have to do that. But how do you respond to those moments in your life? How do you respond to those moments in your life when Jesus has told you everything that you have done? How? You see, this is the very first ever recorded official replay, is what this is, yes. That he replays her life before her very eyes. She uses this term that he told me all that I had, I had done in life. And I always think this is interesting. Because what John does, he doesn't record all of their conversation for you and I. I don't know how long that conversation must have went on between her and Jesus. But Jesus tells her more, I truly believe, than just you have had five husbands and the one you're living with is currently not your husband. There is more that he says to her in that, well, we get the part that really absolutely brings this home to us. But I believe that conversation is very in-depth and very long that Jesus says a lot of things to her at that well that day at noontime. There's more to this conversation than, than is recorded. So what's your response to God when God removes the walls from your life? What, what, when you're lovingly outed by your Savior. Not an enemy, but you're lovingly outed by your Savior. What is your response? And it looks different for all of us. However we got to that point in our lives, whether you got caught or whether God is just convicting you, or, or whether that you've been lovingly confronted by a brother or a sister in Christ, how do you respond? Well, a lot of times we respond like her. We avoid, right? We try to shift the conversation. So we avoid. Some of you say, well, I get angry. Some of you deal with guilt or shame. Those are our initial responses, and we have to keep that real. She avoids Jesus leaning into her heart that day. So what she says, hey, let's talk church. I don't believe that. No, is what she says to him. I, I, that's not the way I think. There's my side to this, is what there is. There's my side, so I don't think the way you think. Because why? Because I'm Baptist, and I don't think that way. Or I'm a Pentecostal, and I don't think that way. Or I'm a, I'm a non-denominational, and I don't, non-denominationalist, so I don't think that way. Or, you know, I'm looking for the church that way where they pull out the snakes. And so I, I don't think the way you think, you know? So there's my side to this. Yes. And so she plays the religion card. And what is Jesus' response to her? Well, for, for some of us, if we were Jesus, at that moment, we would have probably said, Hey, listen, I'm so tired of people playing this religious card all the time with me and avoiding my conversations. Because I just had, a phone, I just had this, uh, this conversation with this Jewish guy in a chapter before this, and he wants to debate about baptism. And before that, I just had this uh, conversation with a theologian by the name of Nicodemus, and he can't understand that of the new birth. And I'm so tired of all of these conversations that you're avoiding me pressing into your heart. But that is not what he does at all. He says to her, I am the one that you seek, is what he says. He says, you're going to talk about the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is standing right before you. I'm the answer to your thirst. I'm the one that fixes what this is, is scandalous grace. And what her response to the scandalous grace within her life is action and spiritual movement. An exposure, an exposure to a massive amount of grace results in spiritual movement within our lives. That obedience is a response to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done in our life. That's biblical obedience. 
It's a response to grace. Can this be the Christ, she said. Yes, he has told me everything about my life, everything about it, but yet he's not condemned me. Grace is the fuel for our obedience. And this explains why some of us really struggle in this area. All the, We're all going to struggle, I think, at times. But yet for some of us, this is a huge battle for us, that, that of being obedient to God. Because why? Because we try to white-knuckle this approach. I'm just going to be a better person. And the focus is upon you being a better person when the focus has to be upon Christ and the grace that he has lavished your life with. That drives obedience in my life and your life. It does. And I struggle with this. Because here's what some of you are doing right now. You say, Mark, how do you know this? Because I'm human just like you are. That you're thinking, well, you know what, my being, this is not like a big deal for me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here plotting to kill somebody this morning. And, and I don't know it. And maybe there is somebody here that's doing that. And if there's a lot of you that are doing that, that really makes me nervous. It really does, right? Because I hope I'm, I'm not on the list, right? This grandiose approach to this, this thing about disobedience and obedience in our life, we lose the meaning of, of, of what this, this is about in the translation of all of that, I think, because what some of you are struggling with in the area of obedience is that that loving your neighbor more than you love yourself, and that's where you're struggling. That God has called you to forgive, but you're really fighting that battle of unforgiveness within your life this morning. That is, that is your fight. And I'm not trying to place value on obedience or disobedience. That's not what I'm doing, but I do realize some consequences are greater than the other. But what we have in this story... Is, is, we have, is we have her side. And, and this is, you know, we all have our side to things, right? And so, Mark, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've been talking to God about my side of this, you know? I've been talking to God about the way I see things. And, and so I'm glad you brought that up because I would like for him to kind of respect how I feel and how I think. That's exactly what she's doing with him in the narrative. She's talking about all these places of worship and, and how, how they worship differently. So she's talking about, here's my side to things. And then, and then what I realize is this, there's always this contrast in Scripture then there is God's side. And then there's this vast, vast difference, this gap between the two of them. And what God is doing as he's talking to her about living water is this. This conversation is closing the gap between her side and God's side. He does the same thing through understanding in our lives about who he is and what he does. He does the same thing in my life about my side and his side. He closes the gap as he begins to talk to us about who he is and an understanding of what he does in our life. And that understanding facilitates her response as she goes into the town that disdains her and she brings them back out to meet Christ. It's the fuel for our obedience. It's understanding who he is. The writer of John, the gospel, also the writer of 1 John, he says in 1 John 5 and 20 about understanding to you and I, and I think this is important that we know this, He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and, here's what he says, and given us understanding. Why has he given us understanding? That we may know him who is true. And he says a step further, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Christ Jesus Christ, he is the true God and and eternal life. It's an understanding of who he is. It's this transition in our life from information and transformation. Those are different. Those are very different. 
Because this understanding that he's talking about, I look at it, what is he talking about in this word understanding? It's a movement in our life from one side of an issue to another to draw a conclusion is exactly what it means. It's thinking that reaches across to the other side. It's what the narrative is that we just recapped in the book of John chapter 4 is what it is. That God enables her to see both sides. That what, what God enables her to do because he vets her is that he sees her brokenness. Also, God reveals himself and that he is the living water. And then he says he is the Messiah. That he absolutely enables her to see his side too. So understanding in our life helps us to see both sides of all of this. And that is important that we do that. We have to go through that process. It creates that, that desire for obedience in our life. So if we understand all of those kinds of things, then where's the problem? Oh, Here's the problem is sin. So, Mark, I knew you had to bring the word up, you know? This is church, right? So we have to bring the word up. So here's the problem about, is, is that I have my side. Man, I have, this is the way I see life, and this is the way I think it should go, and this is the way I think I should approach these things in my life. And then I have God's side over there, and what gets in the midst of all this and mixes this all up and messes up is sin. So... Sin causes my disobedience. Eh. Let me tell you what sin brings into our life before it brings disobedience. Here's what sin brings in our life before it brings disobedience. Sin brings blindness. That's what it does. It brings blindness. So what happens is this. That I become blind to God's side. I become blind to his intentions for my life. And what I realized about disobedience in my life is this. Disobedience is a result of a distrust that God is who says he, who he is and what he can do in my life. It is a product of distrust within my life. So I'm blind to the intentions of God. I'm blind to how good God is. I'm blind to how much God loves me. I'm blind to the fact that God has simply... Uh, he has uh, he has promised that he will complete whatever he has started in my life. I become blind to those things. And when I become blind to God's side and who God is in my life, then the only side that I see is what? My side. That's why we disobey. Yes. That's why you're disobeying. <laughs> You, you've always wondered, well, you know, there has to be all... You know, it's a very simple reason. The reason that we struggle with this thing of obedience within our lives is because we fail to see God's side. We fail to see Him and who He is and what He does within our lives. That was this whole conversation. You can go back and reread it this afternoon, starting in John chapter 4, verse 1, and you will see this played out through this whole conversation. Yes, she expresses her views and her opinions. This is my side. God... T- exposes her to the absolute truth and then God simply exposes the sin in her life which that what that does is this that removes the blindness and she begins to see who God really is and because of that the response is she goes back and she does not just what he said but she even does greater things and she brings the whole town some of your You're walking in disobedience today with God because you fail to trust him. That he is who he says he is. And that he can do what he says that he can do in your life. And you fail to trust him. I thought about, well, how how, how do I illustrate this with you even to a greater depth? 
It's, it's like God says to you one day, hey, here's, there's somebody sitting on the pew next to you, and, and they just lost their job. Maybe you already knew that, but God begins to move on your heart to, to bless them. And so God says to, to you, hey, open your wallet and give them everything that's in your wallet this morning. Now, God, is that you or is that just my emotions, right? Isn't it? We always go there, right? Uh, so God, is that, is that you or is that just my emotions? So we realize, oh, this is God. We know that God is generous. But what God does not know, what God does not know, or you think he does not know, right? That you just, you just sold something in the church parking lot on Facebook Marketplace this morning before you came in, right? Yes. And now not only do you have 20 bucks that you came with, but you had 480 additional dollars from what you sold in the parking lot before you came in here because you thought this would be a safe place and they wouldn't rob you at church, right? So you did that and now you have $500 in your wallet. Now we have a dilemma. Right? Because you're good at trusting God with 20, but what about the 480? You say, Mark, why do you got to talk about money? Because it's something that's very dear to all of you. Absolutely, it is. And so we are disobedient in our lives because we fail to trust God in who he is and what he says that he can do within our lives. And that's where this all breaks down. And so what happens is this, that sin begins to blur our view of God's side. It begins to blur that. It brings uh, blindness within our life. And when blindness is in our life, all we see is my side. And so when all I see is my side, then the reality is that I'm going to be disobedient and I'm not going to listen to the voice of God. And that becomes a way of life for us. It it really does. It becomes a a way of life for us. It becomes our new norm. When you get up every day and you had five husbands and the one you're now, you know, the the smooth talker that you're now shacking with, he's not your husband. It becomes a way of life. And so you just kind of begin to function that way. It's like, hey, all of us in this room, we were all born into oxygen. But how many times of the day do we think about oxygen, right? We don't think about it. Isn't that correct? Because we were born into it. That's it. And so you say, but Mark, what I need is more information. And that's going to help me here in this situation. No, I think what the next step for you in your place of disobedience this morning is this, that you talk to God about this, that you spend some time in prayer about what we have talked about. You say, Mark, I've tried this, but have you prayed about it in light of what we just talked about, that God is opening your eyes to why you are disobedient, that there's sin in your life and what that sin is doing, it's blurring your vision of God's way and God's goodness within your life. And so you're thinking, well, God is just trying to simply pull all the joy out of my life and God is trying to destroy all the fun that I have. And that is absolutely the the furthest thing from the truth because you're blind to what God has said he is and what God has said he can do in your life. And so right now, all you can see is your side. (sighs) Mark, this sermon is making me angry. That's because all you can see is your side, and life is about you. We're going to talk about it in a moment. So if you're angry, hang on, because you're going to actually get livid in a moment. So just hang on for just a minute, right? Yes. Now, now don't get me wrong. This is not about you just adjusting your behavior and going away from here as a nicer person. No, no, no. This is about transition in your life today. 
because we can all go away here and do things a little different in our life, but we know the shelf life of that is very short because that's based upon your own willpower. It is. Because you're always going to have your side because we're sinful creatures, so there's always going to be your side to things and the way you think it should work and the way that you think things should go for you. There's always going to be that. So this is not, this is not just about uh, behavioral adjustment, but this is about spiritual transformation in your life that spiritually God opens your eyes to who he is and what he is doing within your life. And because of that understanding that John talks about, that is what drives your obedience for him. Because when I have an understanding of who God is, then what I realize is this, that all of God's commands in his word become joy to me. Wow. They become, Mark, even giving up my $480 that I made in the parking lot here on God's soil, you know, this is ordained by him for me. Even, yes, absolutely even that. Because it becomes joy to me. Can we continue reading? Because we have to finish our story. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, excuse me, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're they're such boneheads, aren't they? They they are. I love them. (laughs) They remind us of me, absolutely. But they are. They're they're no different than the woman at the well. She says, you know, how are you going to drink without a bucket? And they're thinking, how did you eat? But somebody's brought you some food. Not what he's talking about at all. And Jesus said to them, and this is the part that I underlined, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. But actually in this story, Jesus is both the sower and the reaper, which is so powerful. I sent you to reap that for I, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I've ever did. The second and, and our, our last talking point is this that our inconsistent that's the real, not the ideal, our inconsistent obedience should be based on the model of Christ's consistent obedience. Not only is he God's presence here on earth, not only that, but he's our model for discipleship because he says he's about doing the will of the Father. That is it. And not only does he, but he breaks it down to something that you and I love and he talks about food. I always like it when the Bible talks about food, right? Because we think a lot about it. We do. Some of you had four donuts this morning and a muffin and you chased that with some of that, that iced coffee out there, which is nothing but like sugar, brown sugar is what that stuff is, right? Yes, and you did that and you're already hungry again and you're already... So he brings something into this that we think about a lot, that we love food. We love that. Why? It tastes good, absolutely. But more and deeper than that, because it nourishes us. Understand this, obedience nourishes our life. It nourishes our life. That's what he's teaching us. Understand that. That's obedience resulting from knowing who God is and what God does. That's what biblical obedience looks like. It looks like Christ. 
It's not about earning something from him. It's not like that, about that at all. No, he's already given everything. God does not keep score. I don't know if you know that or not. But God does not keep... There is no celestial point system. And God is the scorekeeper. God is the one who chose to forget our sins. Understand that. It is. I love that. It's like being at a football game. And all of a sudden the referee says, My time. He stops and he says, Hey... Over here, this team, they have been such good sportsmen today and, and their conduct has been so wonderful. Add 10 points to the scoreboard for them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes. There would be a riot. It, it, would, it would be crazy. Yes. No, that's kind of, that, that makes us about much sense as God keeping score. It does. No, it's not about him loving us more. How much more could he love us? It's not about being per- perfect. He's perfect, so we don't have to be perfect. No, obedience is a result of a loving relationship with him. It's understanding who he is, that he's more than a good teacher, that he's more than a prophet or a poet or a great speaker. The prologue of John, the first couple of chapters, tells us who he is, that he's God in the flesh, one with the Father. He's not a creation of the Father. They have coexisted eternally. He is king. He is king of all creation. And he doesn't necessarily say in this life to just come and live like him. What he says to you and I is to come and submit and surrender to him. That's what he says to us. That's clarity that you and I have to have about who Christ is. That he is king. He is king. So I trust him. And I trust him because I understand who he is. And because of that, I am going to be obedient. And through that obedience, I will find lasting joy in life. It's not because I'm begrudgingly doing this. Because some, I don't want to go to hell. Because I, and I want to go to heaven. It's not that at all. It's joyful to obey him. Oh. I feel like I'm about to preach this morning is what I feel like up here. Yes, I do. Somebody said last week, Mark, you got really loud. You yelled. You're about to preach. I said, I thought I was. You know, I really thought I was. I did. Verse 34, though stuck with me. This is why I had to go back to this text. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That obedience is more than just shutting my mouth and doing what I'm told. It is. No, it's not that at all. But what he says about nourishment is this. When you look at the life of Christ, the more that he is obedient to the Father's will, the more his ministry begins to develop. So what that says to me is this. The more I am obedient to Christ, the more I begin to tour in him and the more I begin to develop as a a believer because it's nourishment to my life it's nourishment to my life and when I take this verse and I lay this over my life man I see that a lot of edges don't match up very well it it, it really doesn't and 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 he brings this back to food for me because listen I I think about food at least three times a day I, I really do yes yes but how often do I Give it a thought about being obedient to, to the Father through Jesus. How often do I think about it throughout my day? Yes. I don't because why? Because life is centered around me. It's about my side. It's about my side. And because of, because of me being this sinful individual in my life, and what I realize, I'm blind to his side. And so life truly becomes about me. It does. Can I tell you the one thing in life you need to know? Here it is, okay? The one thing in life you need to know. Are you ready? This is it. Are you ready? You ready? Here it is. Life's not about you. 
<laughs> That's it, right? That's it. Mark, that was the, the most unfulfilling thing that you've ever said to us, right? Yeah, you were waiting for this big theological thing. Life is not about you. It's not. It's about delighting in the Lord through obedience fueled by his grace and forgiveness within my life. That I'm always going to have my side to things. I, I, that's always going to be. But when I approach life with this is not about me. And I have that understanding of who God is. And God is closing that gap between my side and his side. Then, then what happens in my life is this. That this all becomes joy. And fulfillment. I didn't say painless. Okay. Because you can have joy in the middle of pain. Because joy is not predicated on the circumstances outside of you, but it's simply built on the God that lives inside of you. And what I realize is this. That for those moments in my life, and, and when, I'm, when I'm angry, you know, and, and I don't know if you're here angry this morning, and I, well, I know some of you drove angry. That's why you speed, you were speeding, all right? Yeah, but, but what I realize about my life that when I begin to realize that I'm angry about things, it's because life has become about me. And so everything is not meeting my expectations. The more life is about me, the more expectations I have about everything. Everything. Even about you. <laughs> That's being honest, isn't it? Yeah. And you about me. Yes. But what I realize is that the more that I realize that life is not about me, but it's about Christ living through me and me obeying him as a source of joy within my life, then that frees me. That frees me to love you like I should love you. And that frees me to serve others. And that frees me to place others in my life more than myself. And that is the path to fulfillment and joy in this world. That I'm not the point. That God is the point. That God's the point. And so when I see God and I live the, with the fact that God is the point, then that, that helps me to truly believe that all of his commands, all of his commands are for the very best of my life. And when I believe that someone is truly for the best for me, then I can trust them. Hey, I've told you guys this. That, you know, we all have an Achilles heel, right? You know, you know what that is? That's that soft spot in our life. That's the thing that can get us quicker than anything else. And I've told you this so many times, and I tell you it again because I think it fits well here, that, that, that my Achilles heel is trust. Because I think growing up as I did, and, 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 and I, I need, you know, I, I, I deal with this thing of abandonment within my life. So I, I struggle with trust. I struggle with trust. You say, Mark, you need a counselor. I know I've been counseling myself for years. It hasn't worked. But, you know, I do overcharge myself at times for the counseling too. But it's trust. But when I realize that I'm not the point and God is the point, that all of his commands, all his commands are what, what is best for me, 
that I trust him so that my obedience is no longer some begrudging submission, but it's a delight. Even when it's difficult, it's a delight. And the result is joy. Let me finish with this, the last couple of verses. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, I love this because this is growth. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They're talking to her. Have you noticed that? These are the ones that would avoid her on the street. They're talking to her. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, there's some very specific points to this obedience here. And what I love about this is that this is truly about not only being a disciple, but being a disciple maker. And I couldn't go on because I would not give you the whole story without giving you this. That, And I, and I wrote this out of my notes because this is how it works. This is the economy of God. And, and this is this, that the father begins the redemption story for mankind by simply sending his son. The son completes the work of the father by that of going to the cross for you and I. The Holy Spirit glorifies the son and he opens the heart of men to receive the son. And you and I, we continue to go out and we say to the world around us, come and see the man. That told me everything about me. And I add with imagination to the end of that. And never condemned me. I believe truly that we can be obedient in every other area of our life. Every other, some of the struggles of our life. We can be absolutely obedient in all of those areas. But if we are not obedient in this area of going out and telling people to come and see the man that has told me that everything that I did in life, but he didn't condemn me. If we're not obedient in that area, have we, have we missed the mark? Have we missed it? So what does God want me to know? I wrote one sentence. Obedience is the only path to lasting joy and fulfillment in this life. It is. It's not things, but it's obedience. What does God want me to do? Stop white-knuckling my life in the area of obedience and trust that His intentions are for the best of me. And to pray this morning that my spiritual eyes are opened to who He is. And what he says he can do in my life. And that will drive you to obedience. Bow your heads for a moment with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness today. We thank you for your word that draws us, convicts us, challenges us. Father, in this area this morning of obedience, God, we're your children, so you know us, and there's no place to hide from you in, in your loving gaze into our lives. And so you know our hearts and our minds. And so, Father, we, at this moment, confess those areas to you where we are disobedient, 
we confess those things. God, those areas that you've been speaking to us about, maybe for a long time now, and, and we continually make excuses and want to have other discussions about them with you. Lord, we surrender those things to you. We open our heart and mind to the truth today that we have been doing things our way, our side, and sin has blurred our understanding, God. Sin has blurred our understanding of who you are. But today, God, we confess those sins in our lives. We place them under the, your blood that washes away all sin. Give us a clear view of who you are this morning, of what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. And let that be the fuel for our future obedience in you. So, Father, we thank you for that and how you're speaking to us today.